and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. I'm David Ward. In this month's pod, we've three interviews coming up. I've been speaking to the new Artistic Director of English National Opera, Annalise Miskimmon, with exclusive scoops on the new season of English Touring Opera with their Artistic Director, James Conway, and we've been finding out about the Virtual Opera Project with its director, Rachel Hewer. To discuss these and much more, I'm joined virtually by the conductor, Helen Harrison. A very good morning to you, Helen. Morning, David. Lovely to be here. How have uh, things been going recently? I've, I've seen some uh, tweets and whatnot. You've been managing to kind of get back uh, with the with the baton again in front of an orchestra. I did. It was a very exciting day. We made a quick run through some Vorjak in the sunshine, and it was was amazing. So fortunate. Um, just to just to do it was so long a bit what's amazing you you feel so great to be making music but it it paradoxically then feels so normal because actually as a musician that's what we do so i am one of the very very fortunate ones we're also joined by the director singer theater maker all-round talented person uh, freya Wynne jones good morning freya good morning that was a really nice intro thanks <laughs> <laughs> and I understand that you've been very busy over the past few months, but but uh, not operatically speaking, but with uh, with something else. Yeah, so, well, it was quite funny, actually. So I had a baby in October, and actually I was one of those people that was like, right, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, uh, cancel any of my jobs. And then I was like, okay, I better cancel a few of my jobs, because apparently having a baby is quite difficult. Um, so, so I was back to work in February, um, doing some lovely projects. And then, of course, of course in, the, in the pandemic, a lot of work got cancelled. Um, so I kind of just, I have been actually making loads of work at the same time, but... Um, kind of backed on uh, a next uh, maternity of sorts which has been nice so yeah uh keeping busy in many ways good 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 right well, let's uh, let's crack on with this month's agenda then i'm um, starting with the autumn season uh, announcements which of course have been uh, much uh, much reduced from what we would usually hope to see at this this time of year and um, perhaps the most ambitious program that's been announced has been from Grange Park Opera the summer opera festival which usually operates only in the summer months of announced an autumn season which includes a new film version of Britain's Owen Wingrave um, as well as a release of their uh, new opera Feast in the Time of Plague which sounds like very cheery viewing. Um, English National Opera of course have got their drive and live bohem at the moment, they've got a requiem in the Colosseum this autumn as well. Opera North have announced a few small projects, Scottish Opera have got some pop-up performances um, and apart from live streamed concerts nothing else from the Royal Opera House at the moment. So all of the major companies getting back to some sort of business but it's very very slow going. Helen, what's been interesting over the past few months and, and looking forward actually is those country house operas and, and smaller scale opera companies have been able to do a lot more seemingly, um, a lot more, more quickly. Um, do you think there might be a longer term kind of rebalance of the UK opera landscape from this? Or is it just a good opportunity to recognise that opera exists out of those big companies that we tend to talk about all the time? And I know that we're um, guilty of doing that as, as well. Yeah, well... I think where we stand right here and now, I think a lot of the issues are furloughing and the, the difficulties around having lots of fixed overheads that, that if you look at doing anything, just make it horrendous. Whereas if you look at a lot of the smaller companies who are probably exiting and can still access specific pockets of funding that might lend themselves to doing more small scale. So in some ways, the small companies 
who would probably don't have fixed, um, you know, uh, members of staff on fixed contracts and all the rest of it, practically speaking, have probably got more flexibility and they're more used to having to, you know, find a venue and make it work. Obviously, with the whole corona uh, policies and COVID secure, that places another whole raft of uh, thinking onto a process which maybe you're more used to if you've got to be so quick at going to a different venue and making it work within an hour and things like that. I mean, I, I know, David, you, you ran um, the Northern Opera Group Leeds Opera Festival. I mean, hats off to you. So I'm conscious I'm talking to somebody who really understands what that must feel like. <laughs> I mean, I think we'll, we'll hear later from, from James Conway from English Touring Opera, but, you know, he, he says in, in, in that interview that there is something about being a smaller company when you haven't got a fixed chorus or orchestra at this time. Actually, it does mean that you can be a bit more flexible to bring people on board. You're not having to think about trying to keep all of that big ship steady. I mean, it is so, so difficult for those for those companies. So I'm just saying it's just a really practical thing, because as soon as you measure out a space for an orchestra, with two meters which obviously that's one of my experiences it's just amazing how much room it takes up i think the royal opera house have taken out the stalls um and the orchestra there and also opera north their orchestra basically takes up the whole footprint of Leeds town hall which as we know is a, a mammoth space so just sometimes the practicalities of space just really make the whole dialogue quite tricky yeah, absolutely. I mean, Frey, in terms of those announcements that, that have come out, English National Opera have put on a Bohem, Scottish are doing a Bohem, Opera North are putting on um, these uh, outdoor projected performances of Act 3 of, of La Bohem. Um, are we kind of forced to regress back to a mean at the moment? Is that just kind of the reality of, of, of where we are? Or do you think there could be a little bit more ambition being shown again, particularly by some of these larger companies in, in what they're trying to do? I, I feel hugely sorry, of course, for everybody that's tried how to navigate this. And I think heartbreak that so many people are feeling from all levels, whether you're responsible for freelancers and not being able to give them work, whether you're furloughing staff or making redundant. I think, you know, these companies have also planned their rep three to five years in advance. So there must be contracts out that, again, are just a bit of a headache. And I can imagine that there's a, a panic to bring maximum income. You know, you can only have certain number of people seated in your auditorium the the need to sell to capacity is higher than ever before we already know that's been a huge um a huge factor for, for these companies for a long long time so i think people are panicking and thinking what will sell what will guarantee our opera audience come and as a result they are relying on older productions things that have a track record but I think, yeah, there's a huge risk that we're on the brink of, of great progress in opera and that we're going to step back and panic. And the, the Royal Opera House space, it's such a machine. And suddenly the cogs of this machine have had a spattering in them and they've stopped. And it's the first time that actually there is space to look and breathe and really implement change. And I think it would be really brave for companies to do that. Um, and I think... How do they do that? I don't know. I think we'll, we'll see maybe a divergence of, will opera, is opera at kind of crossroads and will we see a split of uh, the traditional paired with something new that maybe hasn't even been seen before or that we've just started testing? And will that be the big companies or the small companies? Uh, I don't know. 
I mean, again, I don't want to give away exactly what we, we talked to James Conway about later, but, you know, one of the points he makes is that actually because they can only play to reduced audiences on their autumn tour, he's taken this as an opportunity to programme really imaginatively, knowing that they don't have to fill a thousand seats. And, um, you know, they can fill 200 seats with something a bit uh, sort of weird and wonderful. Um, and again, I suppose this is a luxury, if we can use that word, for, for a smaller company to be able to do right now. It might not be for a, for a bigger company, but I think you're completely right, Freya. You know, for me now is not the time to batten down the hatches and go back to what we've we've always done. Now is the, the time to really look and see where we can innovate, create change, keep pushing that change forward. I mean, do you think we've seen really exciting, creative, innovative projects coming out of this, or have they just purely been out of necessity? You know, have you seen things where you've thought, actually, they're really they're really onto something here. This is something we could have for the future. Well, my my view is that we get creative often when we have to. So I think it doesn't matter that we've done these things because of what's happened. I think the fact that we've been creative is, is what we have to be and we should be. So what I'm saying philosophically, I, don't, I think it's fine, however they've arisen. I think my take on it is that we've got all these new ways to absorb media. We've got all these new technologies and the history of our art is that as new methods of communication, new techniques come in, think about art and painting and all the different kind of visual arts, we we adapt and we find new ways to express ourselves through them. So I think things will stay. For example, I think the things that have been, uh, been written totally with the view of being online are far more effective than, than things that have just been kind of shoehorned onto being online. And I think we all love, obviously, the live screens, but for me, the idea of creating opera that is is wholly designed with that ultimate point in mind is totally different. I'm up for it. I think for me, I just also quite like anything a little bit quirky or different. For example, can't wait to watch the ENO um, tonight. I don't know when this is going out, but it's on Sky Arts, so it'd be great to see the bow end there. But what I loved on Twitter at the end was all the car horns peeping. <laughs> and I just thought, you know, that is the kind of reaction I want people to have to when they've seen something great. Um, I think I'm, I'm quite open-minded. That has to be a good thing, that kind of response, rather than what I call po-faced, oh, that was rather good, wasn't it? Thank you, darling. Yeah. I think, I, can, I think it's been a really liberating time as well in many ways, hasn't it? Like... You were saying, Helen, you know, there's this idea of, of, well, we've got to innovate, but also that there's a freedom to innovate. So like, you know, as an opera director, the idea of creating something for film just feels like it's not really our place and not something we'd ever usually say that we're doing. But in lockdown, I made a 10 minute docu-opera, uh, Opera Harmony kind of, Ella Marchment launched this huge thing where she just said, does anyone want to make something digital? And, you know, I would usually have thought, well, we can't do that. We don't have a cameraman. We don't have this. Yeah. We don't have that. We don't have the expertise. And suddenly it was like, okay, we're going to do it on our camera phones. We're going to record it. We're going to just just make. And I think there's something hugely liberating in that. So we've got some things to look forward to um, in this autumn season, hopefully more to be announced and on. And um, can I just ask very quickly, Frey, you mentioned there that you took part in the uh, Opera, Opera Harmony project, putting together a little film. Um, how did you find that? experience of trying to make new opera um not only kind of new opera during lockdown but as you say kind of having to do it on film directing over zoom all, all of those sorts of things was it an enjoyable process 
It was hugely enjoyable for me, I think, just to know we were doing something at a time when, you know, that there was kind of paralysis in our, in our sector, to just be doing something and to be connecting with other artists and musicians at a time where essentially everything had gone, gone very silent. I think I did it with my company Voices Collective and my little ensemble, and as a result, we knew each other really well. And there was a lot of kindness and patience and... Um, compassion for the fact that everybody's lockdown experience was very different so um we took our time and um and we explored together and i think you know the thing about it being immediate was there wasn't too much time to get bogged down in the detail of what it should be it was just let's just do it and let's not worry so much. let's just make something and put it out there and see and again i think that was quite liberating what I kind of loved was just saying to people, this doesn't need to be perfect and just do your best. And people were filming on their own. You know, you're not allowed anyone even in your house. So if you're a single person living alone, how do you do that? I was literally filming mine. I think I did all my filming in the one hour that my husband took the baby for a walk. Like it was, and I was recording in my kitchen while the baby was asleep upstairs. I mean, it was mental, but, as a result of that, it was just a, a sense of, well, this is what it is. Just make it. We're still doing it. And it's lo-fi and that's really exciting. I think that's a really good point as well. I think for me, I, I felt and I still feel this right now. It's no good talking about the power of music and all the rest of it. If in this time we really need it, we kind of don't try now. Obviously, we know that different people in different places and for some that the finances and the reality of life but if, if you're in a position where you've got some some flexibility or are, are able to do that, I think if we don't do it now, we're just, we're not, who are we? Yeah. And do you know what? It's the imperfections that make it so beautiful. It's the imperfections in, in, in filming all this. They become surprises. They become the most wonderful surprises. And, and I think the biggest gift, like personally, to kind of see them, it's, it's humbling to see the rawness of that yeah I, I think you're, you're completely right with the imperfections I think the, the greatest um takeaway from from the past six months that I've had was from from Dominic Wheeler who's the head of opera at Guildhall and they did all of their summer operas um yeah. online filming things with zoom editing together and yeah. he said that the, the thing for them was when people were filming them at home not to make them perfect don't do them again and again and again do them once capture yeah. that that moment that you're doing it live and, and embrace the, the slight bits that might not go perfectly you know so i think when we're making things for online we shouldn't think we can do it we're filming it so we can have 100 takes you know yeah do it capture the rawness of, of that moment and i just thought that was such a good um thing to kind of take away and, and think about when we're making this content how can we make online content kind of seem live capture some of that liveness um <laughs> So I think I think you're completely right there, Freya. Embrace the rawness of the of the moment rather than continue trying to smooth over the edges. Yeah, and then that does because the bit we all miss is, and we're lucky because there's some live events happening. Is that is that experience of it's probably a little bit of fear when you're watching something. Not fear, but you're watching something live and you know that it's live, so something can happen. It's and a tightrope, isn't it? You know. Yeah, exactly, and it's that you feed off that as an audience, and sometimes you do see things that are so I shouldn't really say this I'll probably probably get never get hired but it's so slick that it's too slick and it's almost a bit corporate and I, it's a bit cold and 
you know, where's that raw feeling of joy or sadness like coming through the, 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 the thing you're watching or listening to? The frailty, isn't it? And the vulnerability. Yeah. 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 And I think that's one of the things that opera does give you. I think there's something about the unamplified voice, just knowing that that is coming straight at you. You know, and even with a microphone in the waist, something about making the sound electronic and then coming through a, a speaker, which does take away some of that. You know, that's one of the great things about about opera. What is is coming to you through the through the voice? That's a brilliant point, actually, because I think as soon as, as a conductor, um, being obviously con being a control freak, I be working in a live is fantastic. As soon as I'm working kind of where we are occasionally might for say outdoor reasons a little bit or even from doing music theatre, it's so such a struggle for me because basically I'm not in control of what's out in the in the, the house because it's going through the sound desk. So I could be faffing around inordinately with the balance within my pit, but frankly I have no control. So I often have little chats with the sound guys and try and try and make sure that I don't annoy them. But sometimes I think, oh. Bass can sometimes be a bit loud there, can't it? You know, and it's uh, quite interesting. But that's a, that's an aside. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased we've been able to find something we we love about opera and uh, celebrate the beautiful moments, even in all of this uh, doom and gloom. Um, great. Let's let's go into our first interview on this month's pod then. Um, so I spoke to the new artistic director of English National Opera, joining at a very interesting time, Annalise Miss Kimmon, about their new Drive and Live Lab OM and plans for the future. So Annalise, thank you so much for joining us for OperaCast this month. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much. So congratulations on opening LabOM. I'm sure it was no mean feat to, to pull something quite so extraordinary together. Um, is this production a necessity? Is it a gimmick? Is it the future or a bit from all of those columns? What what kind of is this LabOM? I think for us at ENO, it's innovate or die a little bit. That's, a, that's I suppose, a little bit dramatic. But uh, if we cannot make opera in the traditional sense of the clarity and luxury of a traditional theatre space, for us as a company, we just can't sit and wait for everything to go back to normal because as we all know, we're not sure if that will be possible for a long time. So for us, it's a necessity to perform for our audience, for the freelancers that we hire and for us as a company. But also it is an experiment. It is to see how powerful opera can be in different ways and I think Ian has always had a bit of a reputation for that so if we weren't going to do it then I'm not sure who would at this particular time so for us it's also a kind of we hope a kind of service to the industry that when we announced we were going to do it we got a lot of international and national interest from our colleagues and other companies who are trying to work out how they can operate in the current circumstances as well. So we'll be sharing anything we've learned, both the things that have worked and the things that haven't so much um, with them in the future. So I hope that will be of value. I mean, this is, you know, is, is, is a, a huge undertaking, a huge feat. And as you say, kind of comparing to, to, to some of your, your peers is, is, you know, kind of quite a, 
uh, a much kind of grander, more ambitious project than others others might be doing. I mean, have you kind of looked across the industry a bit and, and sometimes been a bit disappointed by the response? And um, the, the complexity of the situation is just extraordinary. And, and we know that in ENO better than anyone in the sense that in order to get this something of this scale achieved, the amount of planning, the amount of flexibility, the amount of risk taking in terms of artistic decisions that we've been able to make, we know better than anyone how difficult it is to do absolutely, you know, anything at the moment. So for me, it's just more thrilling when anyone in our industry is able to achieve anything, um, even if it's technically a smaller thing. In reality, we're all struggling in our different companies who have different challenges in different parts of the country. So I, I really think we're all in that together. And I know there is just uh, nothing but kind of excitement and relief when we hear that another part of the opera industry is able to produce something either digitally or uh, outside or in, in a venue. So. Yeah, we very much feel we're all on the one team at the moment. So we've seen this this BOEM emerge as a an opportunity, I, I suppose, and also you know you've got the the uh, Breathe project with Imperial College that sort of have come out of recent events. I mean, are there other kind of opportunities? You know, can we see any sort of positives or upsides or, or things that this has kind of um, brought home to us that we can actually kind of take as as sort of positives of as of, as what has emerged? Absolutely. I mean, I think the you and I both know that opera at its core is not elitist in any way, but it has had this terrible baggage for years. And in a way, for me, the opportunity for ENO to think outside the box, to use a cliche, and find new ways of being valuable artistically and practically in this time is really what art should be. There is a place, of course, for art for art's sake, and there will always be that. But if art can only operate under such purest conditions, that means when society is at its most distressed and most vulnerable, that art stops happening because it's not flexible enough to find a way of responding to current circumstances. To me, it's just not possible for society to trust that that art form is relevant. So I suppose for us at ENO, there are opportunities, despite the terrible circumstances. And in a way, I think that's actually reflective of what opera composers and creators have done throughout the centuries. You know, very few opera composers and great operas were working in ideal conditions. They were all struggling with endless compromises. And I think sometimes we see that we think of them as producing these masterpieces that just popped out easily under perfect circumstances. That just wasn't the case. So in the same way, 
I hope things are going to be created, not just by ENO, but right across all art forms at this time, that are responses to the current situation and, and also transcend the compromise of circumstance to make things that in, that in the future, future generations will really understand something new about humanity and, and what this particular generation on the planet was going through. So you've got Bohem at the moment, you've uh, announced plans for a requiem at the Colosseum this autumn. I mean, how much can you plan any further ahead at the moment? Do you have any idea what, what the spring looks like or is, is that a silly question? We do have a plan for spring. It's on version 56 or something. I'm very lucky that ENO is full of just the most incredible, talented people right across all the departments who have been able to embrace endless flexibility as one of the key things that's getting us through this time. So we're incredibly optimistic in some ways about the drive to get back into the Collie, to produce wonderful work, big opera that will thrill both first time opera goers, but also established opera goers. But we're also extremely realistic and we put the audience and our, the safety of our teams and our staff and our talent at the heart of what we do. So it's finding that balance. Um, but it, it, it's no surprise, I'm sure, for you to hear that it has been an absolutely redemptive process to be able to create La Boheme despite huge, huge challenges, both for the freelancers involved and the company itself and also for the audience who have been there. It's been a very emotional, joyous, cathartic, important moment for the company to remember why it does what it does. And we're very lucky that Sky Arts Freeview are broadcasting it so we can have um, some reach across the country who are able to see it. So we're in this strange world of feeling very inspired and very, I suppose, gung-ho, but also very aware of the challenges. And I think all arts institutions, especially in opera, I've got to say, are living in that very kind of balanced seesaw moment uh, of limbo. But our limbo, I would say, is very ambitious and optimistic because I, I think that's what opera gives me you know we all struggle with a lot of things in life for me opera is a thing that helps me process the wonderful things about life as well as the absolutely tragic and difficult things about life so for me it's really important that um, we share that with with our audiences going forward. I mean, just, just then you talked about sort of thinking about the plans and trying to balance various different things. I mean, when you're thinking about what you want to do, you know, next year, I mean, where do your priorities lie at the moment? You know, is, is it about reaching audiences? Is it about supporting freelancers? Is it about getting your, your chorus and orchestra back? I mean, how, how can you prioritise those sorts of things when your options are necessarily very limited at the moment in terms of, of what you can do? I think, um, to be perfectly honest, it, you have to, as an artistic director, prioritise all those things at the same time. I mean, that's the complexity of the role at, at this particular time. And I think, I think there is a tension on the surface often between elements in, in those variables. 
but the tension itself can produce innovation and new ways of thinking about things. I mean, that's been the wonderful thing that really we've, we've had to rip up the rule book in a lot of ways with this bohem in order to create something that just wouldn't exist outside the context of COVID. And ripping up rule books can be nerve wracking and it can involve having to make difficult decisions uh, that you wouldn't make under normal circumstances. But it does release a kind of innovative energy into the art form and the company that I think is vital and I hope it will be reflected in how we as a society solve this COVID problem by being courageous and deciding that some, I always think that in an ideal world, especially with something like this Lab OM and with the ENO Breathe program for COVID survivors, that ENO wants to be the research and development wing of the international opera industry. And that is how we're going to continue. We're, we're going to say that we have an opportunity here to make new discoveries, to find new audiences, to inspire traditional audiences. And, and those things will balance each other out over the course of the next two or three years where we're in uncharted territories. Well, I think you do very well about making things sound very exciting and, and promising despite all of the, the, the difficulties uh, going on. Um, f final question, and this is crystal ball time. So autumn 2021, let's say the season's back, full theatres, no restrictions. Is the opera we see on stage, the repertoire, the artists, the staging, any different to autumn 2019? You know, is is anything kind of going to going to change because of all of this, even when we get back to, to the old normal? I think, of course, the preoccupation and immediate emergency attached to COVID has also come at a time when things like Black Lives Matter, gender representation, levelling up, um, class distinctions, all of those big important things now can't be ignored in, in the future of the art forms that are publicly funded in this company. So I think we're already making decisions that are trying to open up opera more which Ino has always led on on and will lead on in the future so there are changes happening already next season and forward that are not just reliant on COVID they're just a very simple urge to reach as many people who are interested in opera uh, so that no one feels excluded. So I suppose there will be new things, but I don't think they will be always just motivated by COVID. They will be motivated by 
just wanting to be part of this modern 21st century world that we're working in as artists and have a great privilege to be publicly funded to do so. So thank you very much uh, to Annalise for joining us this month. One of the things we didn't mention in that uh, interview, but I think, uh, uh, Freya, I think you mentioned earlier, is that Sky Arts is now going to be on Freeview. Um, so Sky's cultural channel is now available for anyone to watch. They have a lot of operas on the channel, um, a lot from the, the Royal Opera House. Um, that Labawem Drive and Live is going to be on this evening, which is uh, Wednesday, um, but I think it's also going to be available on Catch Up as well. Um, so Helen, potentially great opportunity here for, for many more people to, to see opera through you know, the channel now being on, uh, on Freeview. Absolutely, and hopefully someone will channel hop through it and find something. And almost because we're kind of used to YouTube and Facebook showing us lots of things. Maybe someone will see it and give it 15 seconds and then another 15 and then another 15 and, and hear something that they love. So it is great that it's going to be out there. And also, I think because there's such a range on Sky Arts when you look at what's on there, hopefully someone might just have tuned in early or tuned in late and it's on those late nights when people can't get off the sofa and then they suddenly hear some opera. So it is, a, I think, a really exciting thing. I mean, personally, I'm actually quite excited about it, but obviously I'm probably, you know, a little bit more interested than most people in the population. Yeah, I mean, sadly, the opera on Sky Arts does tend to be on at six o'clock in the morning, which is my prime time. But I know which, for most people, that, it's, a, it's a little bit early. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we mentioned uh, earlier on about the uh, new performances announcements this autumn, but a number of companies as well are really trying to push ahead as much as possible with their wider music education and outreach programmes. Uh, we've had announcements of monthly Zoom family workshops from Upper Holland Park. ENO throughout lockdown have been uh, getting on with their ARIA project. We've had companies like Charles Scott Opera, regular GNS workshops on a weekend. Um, Freya, I mean, you know, a lot of the talk, of course, is about that return to, to live performance um, and the difficulties and the, and the challenges there. But do you feel as though there's kind of a, an equally greater risk um, in, in the field of kind of education and, and, and outreach through all the things that we're missing during this period and just that difficulty in returning to getting, you know, opera back to schools and, and young people and, and communities? I think it's huge and I think the problems uh, being faced by education teams that are actually even in the office, you know, it's massive. I'm hearing stories of people having to write, you know, plan 56, you know, five times, you know, every every eventuality, every version for if schools are back. And of course, with the guidelines changing and shifting, nobody knows how to how to reach those groups. Um, I think a lot of teams, you know, education teams were the first ones to be furloughed in some places even though it kind of you're talking about where your audience is the most captive audience were your young people the audiences that need need your engagement um vulnerable communities and i'd say that arts organizations like streetwise opera like companies that were already set up and geared towards working with a vulnerable community showed you know such wonderful just powered through just kept going and actually got on their feet really quickly to deliver a really meaningful offer to their their group which i think just shows that the appetite was there for it the need was there for it and i think especially when you know children were finding themselves at home young people find themselves at home for a long time not knowing what home was like for everybody and often you know opera or those kind of activities are a huge escape for people um and there are some cool things happening you know glyndebourne's still running their uh, 
project for people living with a dementia and, and again having to really innovate because they're an incredibly vulnerable group and shielding so I know they've been going and singing in people's gardens through windows you know I think a lot of companies haven't been shouting about the work that they have been managing to do and that's again because education departments are, are down to bare minimum and, and only just starting to see people coming off furlough and the furloughs happened so quickly I think yeah. in those departments it was you know within a day um, activity ceasing and not even really being able to communicate to people what was happening and if they'd be back and what the plan was and how they were going to keep reaching and serving those groups. So at the moment even with the new guidelines you know you you can have people if it's in a COVID safe environment coming together to, to make music as long as group, groups of six don't mingle you know it's very difficult to do that but you know it, it is possible you know there are things that we we can, we can do it's also worth saying as well in case people are wondering you know, indoor performances that companies have planned, you know, they are still able to go ahead even with the, the new restrictions. So it's just worth remembering and uh, bearing some of these things in mind. Um, Helen, you obviously do a lot of work with um, with youth orchestras over there in, in Lancashire. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's your kind of outlook at the moment? What are you able to do? Um, what have you kind of got got plans to be able to well, do? I mean, how, how are things from your perspective in terms of, of music education, particularly with younger people at the moment? Well, I think... Um what we're saying about the education work is going to be needed more than ever because if we look at a lot of the agendas coming through around you know leveling up diversity and inclusion black lives matter fundamentally it's all about making sure diversity and inclusivity is really at the heart of new not just ticking the boxes and a lot of those programs are so core to, to at least trying to do something practical about those issues. So if those programs go, yet again, it will be the people and the young people who need them the most that will suffer. So, so that's a concern. Uh, what's happening from my point of view is luckily a lot of the work I, I do, I've managed to get online. So the youth orchestra will be going online, but we, we designed the program during the summer with the ability to go live at any point. Um, but also with the ability to keep it totally online. But I have to admit the, the logistics of it, I think you just say it, say you kind of on plan 56. And that's true for all the groups I kind of work with at the moment. And you've got to be uber flexible and, and very positive all the time. And sometimes, yeah, I can say this, it, it's tough, isn't it? Because you've got these plans and you're trying to future-proof them any way you can. I think in terms of a really practical thing is obviously we've got uh, visiting instrumental teachers who can return to some schools but it's all at the school's discretion. Um, schools have got so much to deal with, you know, it's it's tricky but if, if we don't have people engage with music at the right time there will become that a gap of, and that, that people have never had the opportunity and as we know, with financial pressures and lessons, you know, it's only going to exacerbate what we're all talking about, about trying to make sure that everyone's got a really good chance to be who they want to be. The, you know, the, the natural reaction from people has, has been to, to go online. It seems the obvious thing to do. But um, and I think probably what's missing from the conversation is the realisation that actually there, there are still millions of people. I think it's about 10 million people that don't have the Internet 
in, in yeah. this country. As we've seen today, very sadly, from the Zoom call, the internet um, sometimes has, has problems, um, which makes it difficult yeah. to, to do things online. Um, I mean, Freya, is, is online just, again, a, a necessity, the way that we're just going to have to do things? Or are there other things that people have been doing to kind of keep these programmes going if we can't meet in person, but also can't, can't meet online? Or we're just going to have to go for the online option? I think there are lots of different ways of thinking about it. And I think, um, I feel like uh, when we're making plans, it's, it's beautifully optimistic and hopeful to think we're going to be able to do stuff um, live. But I actually think for the sake of everybody's mental health and well-being, artists, project managers, and people that were hoping to engage with this work, that actually we should be imagining this to be a project that that starts from that inclusive level so there's a way for people to access this project um, without their, them being there in person i think that is the kind of beginning however i think there are totally beautiful ways to engage people the problem is you're, you're engaging with people in, a, in small numbers and i and i hope that arts council you know will, will understand that that's a real need at the moment that's a real response i also think city councils and, and places need to be coming on board to make it really possible to create work in pop-up spaces create work in local spaces to have we need access that it almost needs to be you know um it needs to be an essential part of what they're offering making it possible without all of the red tape that that some people can experience to make stuff work there have been so many bonuses of going online you know we've just said you know you can suddenly be at a workshop in you know i'm in brighton i can be at a workshop in birmingham and then back in and never leave my front room which is amazing you know usually it'd be a day of my time it can just be an hour um which i think is really good the way i kind of view the online stuff is i think it's the reactionary online stuff so you run a choir you put your choir online immediately that felt for me especially when you're working with vulnerable groups i run a choir for the homeless community in brighton that felt like a stopgap and my reflection of that was as the weeks went on the stopgap was stretching and stretching and stretching how long can you stretch that before something snaps and I felt I was having to innovate unlike anything I've ever had to innovate before and and you start to realize you're, you're carrying this huge um, responsibility to keep everyone logging back in and that's yeah. what's interesting and I think people need live stuff to really re-engage them but also post how can we create theater through the post how can we make connections with local radio and send stuff in you know this is one of my big things when you're working with the older community radio is something they're very familiar with it's very accessible how do we start tapping into those things uh, email exchanges written exchange like post packs like how can we make new works of opera how can we tell these stories traditional stories um how can we do that in instrument can we call people and sing arias down the phone to them like there's so many ways that we could be innovating um but i think it's about having time and space and someone saying yes permission let's do it yeah, I, we have seen some great things. I mean, we, we've seen the, the, those sorts of phone projects. I love the idea about doing something through radio. I think that sounds like a, fan, a fantastic idea. Um, but I think what you said about kind of getting councils on board is is so important. I mean, if every council in the country put up a big heated tent um, in, in a public space, you know, we could be having all sorts of performances and projects even throughout the winter, yeah. you know, and that's that's kind of one thing that people could do um that councils could do which would cost a little bit of money but could just enable so many things 
to happen. Yeah, it's those sorts yeah. of that leadership, those ideas that we that we need. Um, can I just ask you very quickly, Helen, how does an online youth orchestra work? Well, the first thing is our young people are just like us normal musicians and they've missed it so much. And um, when when we finally managed to have permission, I mean, there's a lot of other safeguarding issues to working online that we've yeah. all had to come to get to grips with and get up speed with. So when we finally could get into position of having a Zoom with everybody, what was so interesting that three months on from the last time we'd done a, a mega concert that was just before lockdown, every single member of that youth orchestra was on the call. But the main thing is for our young people is often just that coming together. And this is what I still keep talking about it, the ability for Zoom to create some sort of a of an atmosphere I would never have believed. It really does and it really works just being together and you can get a bit of banter going um, if you if you manage it properly but just picking up on something that Freya said I think the skills we've all had to pick up so quickly to be effective on Zoom when you're leading a session be it speaking or especially music wow I'm, I'm sure when we get back to live we're just going to find it quite easy. <laughs> well, and you, you're quite right there. We, sh we should never forget the social, the community sort of aspect of not only, you know, making music, but being in rehearsals, being an audience member. You know, it's not just about getting content out there, but all of those things you miss. You even miss perhaps the person, you know, eating the noisy sweets behind you. You know, there's, <laughs> there's something about that that I might regret that when we return to theatres. But even, even that sort of thing, you know, we're, we're kind of missing at the moment. Um, so that, it sounds very ambitious, but it also sounds very well planned, as I would expect nothing less from you, Helen. So Thank you very much. <laughs> all, all the best with that. Um, it's all in Excel as well as usual. Well, I love a good spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> let's get on to our next interview then. I spoke to the Artistic Director of English Touring Opera, James Conway, who revealed details of their autumn 2020 season. So James Conway, thank you very much for joining us for this month's OperaCast. I'm delighted to be here. Good to speak with you again. So you've just uh, announced your autumn season of monodramas, which are going to be uh, being performed in London and, and then touring the rest of the country. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in this season, what audiences can expect. It's related, of course, to the conditions in which we're performing. I had to think about the kind of work that we could do um, uh, with social distancing, with all measures being taken to keep our artists and our audiences safe in the presentation of live work. So that was the first uh, criterion for selection um, for, for work in this season. And actually it was a terrific freedom because I'm quite dedicated to the expressive power of individual artists. I, I love one-person shows. Uh, they're really hard, but I absolutely love them. And they push people terribly hard. And it also meant that <clears throat> we, we could make a different sort of work that was not necessarily, indeed not at all, narrative-based. Um, uh, work that was in a way um, a little more elusive and abstract in its uh, form perhaps a little bit more uh, what people would understand from a modern dance performance. I, I know that they are extremely various, but that narrative is not necessarily the driving force. They will be certainly about something, 
oh, I don't know how to say it. It's something I've always wanted to do. You know, there, there are three different programs that we've put together for this season. And the second one is one that I have been working on in my head for 20 years. Because I've, been, I, I, I've long thought that the uh, Songs and Proverbs of William Blake of uh, Benjamin Britten was an extraordinary piece that comes across quite nicely in a recital hall but that would come across in a hundred different ways, perhaps a little more connected to the restless genius that was Blake uh, in a more theatrical presentation and even outside of a theatre. And we're, we're still looking for some outdoor venues where it might be suitable to perform that. Uh, if you know anybody who's got a lead on how you do things in uh, Bun Hill Fields um, <laughs> or in tunnels around uh, Waterloo Station where there are murals, uh, related to uh, Blake's work, <clears throat> you just let me know because yeah, we're still with difficulty. <laughs> I think is how you do those things. Yeah, but you know, maybe not impossible. <laughs> um, anyway, I've been wanting to match those with Shostakovich's extraordinary romances on English poetry, and one will say, uh, and uh, also with uh, Britain's another song cycle of Britain that. Uh, was written um, in Armenia when he was on a visit there, working with Rostropovich and uh, Galina Vishnevskaya, uh, alongside Peter Pierce, of course, uh, a, a set of poems which he set called The Poet's Echo, which are uh, settings of Pushkin. And I'm grabbing the chance I have to present it to the public because it might not be mass public material. Should be, but probably isn't. And I'm looking at smaller audiences this time. So I'm, I'm thinking they're going to be smaller audiences who will be really challenged and they'll hear things they haven't heard before. Um, if they're smart, they'll listen before they come because, of course, music means much more when, you, uh, when you're not hearing it for the first time. Just like poetry uh, acquires more and more meaning on uh, repeated, I was going to say hearings, but you know, one usually reads poetry, repeated readings. And all the poems in, in this, uh, this group of three evenings, or indeed the prose, is very important to me, and I think very important to this world of isolated individuals that we have become in this period. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested what, what, what you were saying there, because there would be an obvious thing to do during this time, which, which some companies are doing, which is just to sort of regress to the mean, you know, fall back on your stalwarts. Um, but you're very much not not doing that. I mean, with with having the smaller audiences, have you seen this as an opportunity to 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 push out some of these ideas, ways of staging work, repertoire that actually you you couldn't fill a whole auditorium with necessarily? Yeah. Is it about using this as an opportunity? Um, Absolutely. Show people something. I'm thrilled with the opportunity. I'm, I'm I'm not thrilled with the situation in which we all find ourselves, but I'm absolutely thrilled with this opportunity because. Um, no, I think in a way this is, it's a time to become more intensely who and what you are. And um, I think this is very intensely what, who and what English touring opera is now, is things, it, one must be poetic. Everything one sees must have a meaning, you know, uh, I'm, I'm so non-kitchen sink really. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it, for me, it, it, it should have a kind of purity in a sense of what lyric theatre is. Um, a purity and simplicity and an evident, deep and 
uh, a deep attention to the music. Um, I'm not saying other people don't do this at all. I'm just saying that we, there's a way of doing it that I think is particular to us and that I, 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 want, to, I want to make that furrow deeper and richer. Um, I, I, I honestly think audiences are craving uh, communication at a rich and personal level. Um, well, I, I think it's worth saying because, you know, as I say, you know, there are lots of lots of companies and instinctively would think, you know, let's let's just just try and go for the, you know, kind of big popular tried and tested sort of things. But I think, as you said, you know, really sticking to what it is that makes you you actually is the thing to be doing in in, in these times and really kind of battening down on what it makes that each artist, each company, you know, unique and, and, and special to its audiences. So I think that's that's really interesting to to hear. Um, I mean, and it's, but if I could just add, David, it's also connected to um, performers have been silent for uh, a number of months, and I, I, I'm when they utter now, I would like them to be able to utter in a very expressive and personal way, um, because I think they're craving that. And I know from because I, I talk to audiences a lot, uh, audience members. Uh, I know they value that. They value the artists. And for, uh, I, I want this company to be one that absolutely foregrounds and empowers uh, freelance performing artists. Well, on, on the theme of freelancers, I mean, ETO was, was, was brilliant. I know you honoured the contracts of all the singers who the spring season was, was cancelled, which was, which was fantastic. Um, but obviously the autumn season is very small. You know, it's, it's, it's monodramas. It's one singer, one one performer, two performers, and a pianist, um, you know, by necessity. I mean, what, what can organisations like ETO2 to, to support freelancers? You know, you, you would have been working with, gosh, how many people this, this, this autumn originally? Um, I mean, are there things that ETO can, can do for that wider freelance community, or are we just having to hope the, the government steps up, steps up more? Well... At this stage, I'm very concerned about our spring shows, you know, which were that's we were going to be performing with a chorus and a larger orchestra. So that relies on being able to put the orchestra safely into the orchestra pit um, and for all the performers to be what well, they, they can't be, you know, a meter and a half or two meters apart from each other if it's an opera with a significant chorus. Uh, so I may have to change plans in that case, but it's it is breaking my heart if we have to, because there are, I mean, everyone's in place. Um, no one has contracts because I was careful, but everyone's in place and I've asked them. And, and we had such an extraordinary group. Um, we have such an extraordinary group. And I'm still quite hopeful, frankly, that we'll be able to tour from March to June at that scale. Now, if we can, we'll make some other plan. What can we do? All we can do is be creative and think, okay, what is the work that we can make? How can we make sure that as much of the funding that, that we have makes its way into the pockets of performing artists to do what they're good at and in, in ways that can be presented to an audience? Um, and we'll, we'll have to get more creative as time goes on. And we have the will to do so. But I think extreme clarity about what you're funded to do is a very helpful guiding principle. Mm. I mean, on, on that theme, obviously your English touring opera touring is, is a, a huge part of what you do. And um, 
I mean, it's, it's fantastic that this season will be touring. Must be incredibly difficult to to, to plan and execute that at, at, the, at the moment. Uh, in terms of the, the venues that you'll be going to the, this autumn, I'm, I'm not sure you're able to uh, release details yet, but have you had to look outside of traditional kind of theatre spaces? And, and might that use of, of non-traditional spaces be, again, something um, positive or an opportunity that kind of moves on, you know, after the, the pandemic has kind of all, all uh, been behind us? Absolutely, David. I think in the venues that we're going to be or should be announcing promptly, um, there's not that much that's, that there's some that are new to us, for sure. And uh, others we're returning to after a long time, which is exciting. I, the, you know, it changes day to day. Um, we lost three on Friday. Um, and they were the three surest ones in the tour. Mm. Um, so, uh, and, and some others have come in. Uh, I, I wish there were more non-traditional performing spaces. Uh, it is, uh, non-traditional performing spaces are really onerous and we're a small team and we're especially small now because uh, a number are you know, just coming off furlough. And um, so I'm, I'm thinking it will get more and more that way. Uh, it's a little tricky out of doors. I had three really good locations out of doors. And the getting of permissions is still dragging on. Uh, so I just hope we get some light at the end of, the, of, of that uh, permission period um, in, in order to do that. And if, if not now, then when we can. I mean, English weather is against us. But I mean, one of the pieces, the um, A Waterbird Talk of Dominic Argento, which is one of the more traditional, one of the two traditional operas in the season, um, it would be fantastic to do that in natural history museums. And we are trying um, because all you need is a, is a person, a slide projector and uh, a pianist and, and another piano. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a, actually a, a charming, sad and funny piece that would be a great introduction to opera for people who are not regular opera goers. Um, it's uh, it's full of melancholy and uh, and sweetness. I, I I like it very much, um, and it's not going to scare the horses. And uh, so it would be great to do that in places, even if people didn't end up paying because of the difficulties of, of arranging that. But it would also be well suited to performance in lecture halls if you can find one large enough. And I think I get the feeling there are a few lecture halls around the country with not that many students in them. So we are going to keep these on the boiler. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm hoping that these will be th performances that we are making that we can revive in different combinations at different times uh, in all sorts of spaces. You've talked about thinking creatively, and this is an enormously exciting creative season. You've also talked about thinking practically about the necessities of, of putting on this, this season. Um, I wonder if, do you think that's, that some companies perhaps have, have not been quite as flexible in thinking about how things have to have to change? You know, we, we hear that theatres can't reopen because because shows are too big, but obviously, you know, you're, you're booking that trend by thinking about the necessities. You know, do you think some have been reluctant to think about how we might do opera differently? They're just, they're just waiting until we can have the big orchestras, the big choruses again. Well, I think there is that reluctance for sure, but I, I, it's reluctance. Reluctance sounds like a negative word. It's probably very sensible reluctance. Um, uh, ETO is in a very good place. 
because we don't have much stuff uh, and we're used to touring and I'm not really interested in stuff. So we, we are in a, uh, we, we're in a great position in a difficult time like this because we can change direction rather quickly. We don't have a, you know, a large full-time pool of artists with whom to negotiate about it. Um, uh, we aren't. We don't have a big staff that is a you know a, a drain on the uh, resources of the company at a time when income is well basically gone. So um, our our economic model and our physical model allows us to adapt naturally. I I can't imagine how problematic it, problematic it must be for colleagues who have heavier setups. You know. Mm. Um, uh, I wouldn't want to be wrestling with those logistics now. I'm just really grateful for once that we've just got one room and a bunch of relations with artists. Um, that, that seems to give us the ideal amount of flexibility to uh, kind of, you know, roll with the punches, as it were. Final, final question. So let's imagine... 12 months time, you know, you're doing your, your autumn 2021 season. We've got full theatres, no restrictions. Do you think the opera that we see on the stage, you know, whether it's the repertoire, the artists involved, how it's staged, do you see there being a different future for what opera um, looks and sounds like post-pandemic? Or are we just kind of going to expect what we had, you know, pre-COVID? Do you see anything kind of changing in a more meaningful way when we're, we're back to a, a sort of normal? Yeah, that's a toughie, because um, I love opera. Um, and um, I think very often people who think, oh, well, you know, it is a bit problematic that it's almost all by dead people. I think that's a bit of an issue. <laughs> and it's something that we should, well, that everyone tries to face in one way or another, but it's not somehow built in to the art form now that it is renewed and renewable and that an audience will want to come to work to new work um, that, that's a problem uh, that I, i'm you know just the last on the line to recognize um, so w one would like to see that change uh, but at the same time i, I um i would i'm not i, I think there are opportunities for opera online but to be honest i've become more aware of their uh, limitations over the course of this lockdown um, than of, of some great new freedom in that line um, perhaps i'm just lacking in the imagination to see how that can be uh, a really rich and, and uh, fulfilling um, experience in every way i would like there to be inbuilt in the structures of opera renewal and change, yes. Um, I think that's not very likely, but uh, if it comes from anywhere, it will be coming from uh, uh, outfits like um, English Drawing Opera, I think. So Helen, we, we heard there from James, they've got this tour of monodramas, one person performances this autumn you know great to see you return to the stage amazing that they're touring this as well that must be an absolute nightmare um <laughs> but of course by necessity you've got maximum three people on a stage you know if, if this is kind of the way that we're going you know 
being doom and gloom. Is there any hope really for retaining our, our opera workforce, not just on stage, but, but backstage? I have to say yes, because I, I feel I, I can't, I, I have to be hopeful. It's going to be difficult. And again, this is where the, the realities of employment law for the employed will be difficult because it may, people may have to be willing to do things that they've not done before if even the funding comes through. And I know right now so many organisations are waiting for the, the outcomes of part of the uh, recovery fund, the 1.5 billion from the Arts Council. So it's a, it's a tricky time. Also, on top of that, though, we know there's so many freelancers. Most of these companies, yes, there will be a, a core of salaried people who, who run those houses, but also it's all those freelancers who effectively have worked freelance for these organisations for years, and that is the, that's the tricky bit. I, I don't want to be too do, doom and gloomy, but we're not in a good place and the arts world needs needs more help. For example, in Germany, I think they've already got in place a flexible furlough scheme to 2022, which gives you some idea of the planning in government. The other thing is we're so uh, behind in terms of our ability to, to test people. In Germany, so many more musicians are working because there's regular COVID testing. But obviously, we are, sim we are hoist by the the situation we find ourselves in our country overall, uh, which obviously we all we all heard Boris last night. So I don't think that's a really positive answer. Yeah, but I, th I think it's a realistic one. I, mean, I think you, you're quite right, obviously, about government support where where possible. Testing is another one. I know that the, the London Symphony Orchestra are introducing their own private testing to help the orchestra get back together. That's obviously quite expensive but it is it is one option that, that companies perhaps could could look to and um, you also said there Helen you know companies across Europe are getting back on their feet you, you might have seen that um uh, the Teatro Real in Madrid the other day the audience actually stopped a performance because the audience weren't social distancing and um, but at least that tells you that they are getting back in a theatre and um, we already are seeing an exodus of British performers to, to the continent and um, wow. There's also the B word, isn't there, that is absolutely going to compound a lot of issues coming up as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean Freya, sort of a same sort of question to, to you, really. I mean, from, from your perspective and, you know, all of the freelancers that you work with in your network down south compared to us, us northerners, uh, I mean, what is kind of the, the outlook as you see at the moment in terms of the, the stability of, of the workforce going forward? I mean, the Musicians' Union have just have just published an article in The Guardian, haven't they, saying a third of British musicians are likely to walk away from from the arts because because they have to, um, which is really, really, really bleak. And again, kind of, it's a time when you also get to really acknowledge your privilege, I think. And I think there's a lot of conversations that need to be happening about those that are able to wait it out and those that aren't. Um, and I think uh, the conversations I've been having have been yeah those kind of musings of like yeah i've kind of got little bits here and there how long can we wait for this and oh god what do we what what comes next and i think freelancers particularly especially if you've worked for a number of organizations so you know you get freelancers in in you've got freelancers for big companies who are pretty much full-time members of staff then you've got other freelancers who are, who are ad hoc and I feel that they maybe have complete, you know, no one feels beholden to those 
those freelancers mm. and I think that's felt quite sad if you feel that you've committed a lot of time and passion to companies and a lot of loyalty to companies to fill a little bit adrift there were some companies were brilliant you know and, and tried to honor contracts or sent out emails saying we're in this together and we value you and we care about you and that's fantastic but really what we need is to know that we're going to be invited to do work again at some point. And I think one thing, especially thinking about backstage as well, I think one thing I would love to see more of is I think companies become very insular and, and I feel huge burden on, you know, boards and all of that to feel that they have to solve this problem by themselves. And actually, I think if you spoke to your technical guys, your stage three, your props makers, and you said, look, we're not making any props. What can we do? What can we do with you? How can we make yeah. something work? They'd probably have some really great ideas. And I feel like we need artists at the table. We need artists in the, in the, on the board meetings, in the discussions to be helping unlock some of that. And I think people aren't, aren't asking their team because they're so fearful about, about the landscape and actually some real innovation would probably show there are ways to use a lot of your team in ways you hadn't even thought possible. I've always said techies are the most creative people. Give a techie a challenge. They will rise to it and, and surpass it. And um, you, you're quite right, Frey. Getting, getting as many people involved as possible, I think, is important. And we must never forget that, yes, it's very easy to see the people on the stage and in the pit, but there is a huge team of people behind there who, um, you know, we absolutely couldn't do it without those people. They're absolutely vital to it. We must not forget them as well. Yeah. And not asking them to do it for free. Sorry, really important. Like don't invite people to those meetings and then expect them to give you all their ideas for no recognition financially or otherwise. Yeah. That's uh, a great point. And I think there was something the other day, wasn't it, about the dynamic in a room is so different when you've got a whole, say, a group where everyone's salaried or paid and then uh, you've got someone there who is effectively giving their ideas for free and not even getting a one-off fee. Yeah, and that's obviously not just a, a COVID problem. That's been a problem for, for many, many years. <laughs> but hopefully, one again, I think we're talking about these things a bit more, which I think is, which I think is great. And we really should talk much more about the cost of time. Um, you know, it's not just actually doing work, but the, the time it takes to do things. And even, you know, whether it's, as you say, one-off meetings or whatnot, there is a cost to those sorts of things that we just have, we have to understand. But I think we are getting better at talking about and it. I think this has forced the issue as well, because when you have no income coming in, do you know, all of that, all of that really matters. And suddenly you can't just fit in that free meeting around your other work. You know, yeah. it's the work. It's the work that we've got. We've spoken a lot about innovation today. So let's end with our final interview with Rachel Hewer, director of the Virtual Opera Project. So, Rachel Hewer, thank you very much for joining us for OperaCast this month. Thank you for having me. Now, you're in the middle of a very exciting project at the moment. Um, tell us all about it. How did it come together? What is it? Well, I've set up a project called VOPRA, which, is, which stands for Virtual Opera. Um, it came about because I was incredibly miserable and felt completely lost because I felt like I'd lost what I love because I believe what we do in this business, we do because we love it. Um, and that's certainly um, the most important thing for me. 
So I was feeling this way and I thought, I can't be the only one. In fact, I know I'm not the only one. So what can I do about it? I'm not qualified to save a business or an organization that I care about. I'm not going to be the best person to stand up in front of government ministers and state my case. But what I can do and what I'm really good at is putting on a show, bringing people together and realizing an idea that I have. So the idea of doing a version of L'Enfoil et Sortilège just sprung into my head one day as I was sitting in the garden and listening to the piece and I thought goodness me this is actually incredibly relevant a child this was back in in March right at the end of March a child that is being educated at home which is exactly what I was doing at the time who encounters a, a conflict at home reacts and is then faced with a completely unpredictable and unquantifiable situation that that child then has to live through and I thought this is exactly what we're what what we're living in it's exactly how how our, our world is right now and I thought each of these characters that this child visits or is visited by could be each of us and our reaction to what is happening to the arts and what's happening to us as individuals during this pandemic. Well, it's, it's an excellent idea and an excellent choice of opera, as you, as you said as well. Um, and I think as well, you know, obviously part of this project is about getting people back performing. I mean, what a great opera to choose. So many characters, so many weird and wonderful characters for people yeah. to, to, to inhabit. Um, I mean, people can go on your social media. You've got lots of fantastic behind the scenes stuff of people recording things at home. Um, you've got the recording with the orchestra, all those sorts of things. Uh, tell us kind of a, a bit about how the project actually gets gets put together, what kind of the different component parts are, what the singers are actually having to do to, to make it happen. Yeah, well, actually, b- before I do that, I'd just like to touch on what you've said there about returning to performing. And um, for me, it, it's all about um, sort of mental well-being, because, as I said, I felt really miserable and really lost not being able to do what I love but I also realized that we can't underestimate what impact and effect that this has on us as performers and theater makers having this element completely just taken away from our lives so each of my participants anybody that's involved in Vopra has access to 24-hour mental health support from qualified practitioners who are available to to be there if anybody wants to talk to anyone so that returning to performing aspect of this project is is really really important to me Um, in terms of how the project comes together yeah so we held auditions over zoom Um, we had people from all over the world apply to be part of the project Um, once we'd cast it we began having rehearsals also through zoom so each each character had two music rehearsals a french language coaching and then a production rehearsal with myself um in terms of their um visual performance i am only using their facial expressions and their face so what what happens then is that I, me, just me, go into a green screen studio that I've built in a shed in my garden and I create all of the scenes, all of the actions, the distances, the characters, any movement, choreography, 
everything I make in this green screen studio. Our designer then makes a background, furniture, buildings, floors, ceilings, uh, costumes that then get added to that green screen footage. Um, and then we take the singer's singing face and put that onto my now non-existent body. Um, the the audio aspect of it is that we recorded the London Philharmonic Orchestra um, who have recorded the score and each singer records themselves at home so it's a it's a completely independent separate um, process everybody is is on their own uh, they then send that to us and we lay that on top of the LPO recording and it all <laughs> hopefully <laughs> will fit together perfectly. Um, but fingers we, it, Yeah, fingers crossed. Absolutely. It's a, it's a brand new idea. As far as I know, we're the first ones to be doing something like this, certainly something this ambitious. We've worked for months to try and figure out the best system of how to get the best results. Um, and it really is just a, it's a matter of application and determination of how to face all of these hurdles and look at it and go, actually, this is impossible until you find a way to make it possible. Mm. I mean, you're, you're a, a stage director. That's what, that's what you've, you've been doing. I mean, how have you found this transition to, to film? I mean, is it something that's kind of come naturally or are you all kind of learning as you go along we're we're completely learning as we go along i say at the beginning of every rehearsal that i have i go i i do not claim to be steven spielberg i i have not trained to be a film director but i know opera and i know performers and i am confident that i know how to get the best out of people and i certainly gonna try to do that so there's a huge amount of learning as we go along and preparation and trying to work stuff out but actually I feel like there's a lot more in common between the two art forms than you might think at first it's just about connecting to each individual performer and enabling them to relate to the story that they're telling and then being able to articulate that story through their performance and certainly everything that I've seen so far we've had some absolutely fantastic footage back from these amazing singers who've just invested in this and thrown themselves in 100% what I've seen so far I am very pleased and proud and confident to say that what we're being able to achieve is 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 quite remarkable so obviously this is a project that was that was made out of necessity um but but can you see this as being a model that might go forward even when we're we're back on stages again i mean is there something about this that you think you've really been able to to hit on as a way that we might want to make opera moving forward yeah i don't know if i'm qualified to answer that question what 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 i can say is that if i was going to do this again um it would very much depend on the piece it was the piece that arrived in my imaginative conscious in in my sort of 
you know my my passionate pledge to do something it, it was the it was the piece that really drove that so it would need to be the right piece for me but in terms of the art for, for moving forward as a whole I do think that we need to find a way to make work that is for this medium we have a lot of very wonderful um, films of performances that were made for the stage and they are brilliant that I've studied them I love watching them but what we have now is we have an audience an, an online audience that we would never have been able to generate before a whole generations of, of people who would be very comfortable sitting in an auditorium watching something on stage who before would never have logged on to YouTube or a website to watch something at home. We would never have been able to convince them to do that. But now we can. We've got that audience. They know how to log in and watch stuff while sitting on their sofas. And what they need now, they deserve content that is made for that platform. So I believe that finding a way to make stuff that that fulfills that desire is is something that's dead exciting to look forward to, actually. Now, people are starting to get back on the, the stages again. There's kind of slow tippy-toes back into, into live performance outside and, and indoors. I mean, I was just wondering on a, on, a, on a personal note, kind of how you're feeling about uh, opera getting back on its feet and kind of the, the, the future for, for opera here in, the, in, in the, the UK. Are you seeing those kind of green shoots um, from the, the rest of your, yeah. your team? You're sort of feeling a bit more positive about, about how things are going? Um, as on a personal level as an audience member I am extremely excited and very enthusiastic about what's happening so I was I've been to Glyndebourne twice to see what they were what they had on offer I'm going to the ENO live and drive you know I've I was lucky enough to go to the LSO concert the LSO at St Luke's a couple of weeks ago so yeah as an audience member it's like bring it on absolutely as, as long as I feel safe and as long as everybody else is safe then I can't wait for that as a director I mean it was hard enough for somebody like me before all this happened and I can't help but feel just as pessimistic about my future in this business as as other people do um it's difficult to be able to see how we're gonna get back to some kind of normality um even though you know that's that's what i want i just i just want to work and i'll i'll be very i'll be very keen to do whatever it takes to get back into a rehearsal room and so we end, as ever, with the opera quiz. Um, now, last week, sadly, we had the news of the death of the US Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, as well as being a huge opera lover, was the subject herself of an opera in 2005. So for today's quiz, we're going to be testing... Uh, she's shaking her head, I can see on Zoom. Um, Helen and Freya's knowledge... I know, of I know. ...knowledge of operas based on real people from the 20th century. I've got five operas here okay. and I've got five clues for each opera. 
So we're going to take each one, each one in turn. I'll read out the clues. If you think you know the opera, um, or you know the person the opera is based on, so you can give me either answer, you can shout it out. Um, if you shout it out and get it right, you get a point. If you shout it out and get it wrong, you're out for the rest of that round. Okay? So you can only have one guess per set of clues. It's a ha is it so Freya, we're on Harry's strategy for this one, aren't we? Yeah. One one clue. Bring it. One guess per set of clues. Um, so I need either the name of the opera or the name of the famous real person the opera is based on. Okie dokie. So here's number one. The opera premiered in Houston, Texas in 1987. Uh, I'm going to go I'm gonna go for it because I'm feeling genki. Uh, I'm going to go for Nixon in China. Knocked it out of the park. One point to Helen. Yes! Oh, Bring it on! Beautiful. Well done. That. Sorry, uh, sorry, that's really... Sorry, Frey, I'm so sorry. It's all right, I've got one in my head, and if it comes <laughs> out, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> <laughs> that was my one before, by the way. <laughs> that's why I knew it. Uh, the rest of the clues. Uh, Opera's main character was born in California in 1913, received a British Royal earlier this year with Scottish Opera, uh, captures a specific moment of this person's life in 1972, and the opera staging is often dominated by a life-size replica of a jumbo jet. Uh, so those were going to be the clues, but you got it after one. Excellent work. Here's Do I get two. bonus points for that? No, sadly Do I not. Get any no. No. You just have to knock it out of the park with the rest of them. Um, opera number two. <clears throat> the opera's main character was born in Houston, Texas, in 1967. Anna Nicole. It's two of two for Helen. My oh. word, it was obviously far too easy. Yeah, well, Your knowledge of Houston-born. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Houston. Houston-born opera protagonist, congratulations. Uh, I know, that's quite random. It premiered <laughs> those are the only two I think I know. In 2011, uh, the main character died of a drug overdose in 2007. The Guardian said too little of the show seems necessary at all. And the premiere cast included Gerald Finley, Susan Bickley, and Eve Mui Westbrook in the title role. So that was Anna Nicole. It's 2-0 to Helen. Uh, this is a tricky one now, I think. So we'll see. <laughs> Number three, the opera premiered in San Francisco in 2017. The title of the opera includes brackets. One of the protagonist's famous inventions was used to create and perform parts of the score. The opera's main protagonist was born in San Francisco in 1955. Steve Jobs. Helen takes the win, three out of three. That was oh. the revolution. Freya, this is job. never what happens. This, this just happens I mean, in a quiz that I can actually do. Honestly, just go back and listen to my other appearances. Genuinely. If, I, uh, if I go to a quiz with my mates, I'm just the one that describes. I'm just so bad at quizzes. Full stop. Doesn't matter. And every time they're like, that should be a question. You know the answer. I'm like, just, just give me a pencil and a pen um, and a bit of paper and I'll Opera can illuminate the interior thoughts of different characters. That makes it an ideal medium to explore a man who revolutionised how we communicate. Um, very well done. We'll, we'll do the final two, um, just for fun. Oh, even though I've lost. Yeah, okay. Uh, so this next one. The opera premiered at San Francisco <laughs> Opera in 2005. Its main protagonist was born in New York City in 1904. 
It was the composer's third opera, all of which concern real life figures from the 20th century. The opening lines of the opera are, we believed that matter can be neither created nor destroyed. The I really want to say Einstein oh, I, on the beach, I, but I'm sure I've got it wrong. I, know, I think I know this. It's, um, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, that, it's the Doctor one. Uh, Peter played the character, but I can't put my finger on it. It's in my brain somewhere. The nuclear scientist. You, you've got the right thing, but I, I, I know, but I, Doctor, Doctor. Oh, I want to say Doctor. doctor. No. It's, uh, it's Doctor I, Atomic. Oh, yeah. oh, come on! I think I was quite. I, I, you could tell I was genuinely there. About Oppenheimer. Um, That's it, Joe Oppenheimer. Yeah. The final one, a uh, bit more of an obscure opera, but a very famous person. Opera premiered in Philadelphia in 1991. The opera's main character was born in 1907 and died in 1954. The opera is sung in both English oh. and Spanish. Evi oh no, <laughs> sorry, I've the wrong head, Evita. <laughs> it's not Evita, I'm going to take that as you guess. I know, I know, I know, so you can... <laughs> the opera's other characters include Leon Trotsky, Mr. Rockefeller and Three Calaveras. And finally, Time Magazine's Barely. review said the opera conveys the radiance and explosive fury of the woman whose art was, in the words of Andre Breton, a ribbon um, around a bomb. Was it Marilyn I mean, Monroe? Sounds great, doesn't it? it sounds great. I know. We need to watch yeah. this. It's a really good opera. Is it Marilyn Monroe? No. It's not. It is Frida, based on the life of oh. Frida Kahlo. Um, it's a really, a really terrific uh, piece premiered, obviously in 1991, um, but a really great work there. A bit of an obscure one to finish with. Um, Helen, uh, well done. Two from yes. the first clue alone. Well, well no, but, you know, it's, it's more, more luck than artistry. <laughs> <laughs> very, very impressive work. Well done indeed. Um, that's all we've got time for this month. Um, a huge thank you to our panellists as ever, uh, Helen Harrison. Uh, a thank you to you. Absolute pleasure to be here. Always nice to chat and lovely to meet Freya as well. Hello. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much to Freya for joining us all the way from uh, Sydney Brighton. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Lovely to talk to you all and share these ideas. It's great. Uh, thank you both very much indeed. We will see you all listeners next month.